calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 481. The Drabblecast is an audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Week three of the Drabblecast's Wiki Wiki Weird Wild West. What? <laughs> What's that you say, Will Smith? Get this week's hundred word travel story out my f***ing mouth. <laughs> all right, all right, dude, geez, I was just about to. I was just, whoa, 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 hey, don't come up here, what are you doing? Wait, Will, no, don't do it, don't try, it's not. You just had to come up here and start slapping at stuff that looked like me, at least to you. Because it kinda is, but also only kind of. And so obviously that happened, and now everybody knows, because everybody heard that, and the gig is up. Ugh. Thanks, Will. And also, I'm sorry, I-, I keep meaning to get a sign or something that says do not touch. The problem is, touch is my love language, so I don't want to push people away either. It's too bad you can't hear this anymore, Will, because Right about now is when you'd hear me getting that hundred-word travel story of yours out my f***ing mouth. It's by Ende Mac, and it's called Don't Look It In The Mouth. Sounds like your cup of tea, buddy. Here goes. That horse of yours don't look right, Maggie, Lewis said, reining in his own to a halt. Maggie dismounted. Ignoring him, she picked through the short grass with the tip of her boot. Your horse? What? said Maggie, then kneeling to comb through the weeds. I said, your horse, I hurt you the first time, you nag. I got her cheap. She stood, flicking burrs off the eyeball she recovered. She popped it back in the horse's socket. Besides, this is only her third life. She teasingly poked a finger through the hole in Lewis's temple. And you're already on your fourth. And that brings us to our feature story this week, The Alamo by Cedric May. 
Cedric lives in the Dallas-Fort Worth area where he teaches African-American literature at the University of Texas at Arlington. After nearly two decades of academic publishing, Cedric's returned to his first and foremost love, writing speculative fiction. In particular, he writes horror and psychological thrillers that center historically marginalized peoples within the genre. The story is read to you by Patrick Bazile. Patrick was born and raised in Chicago. He's voiced everything from PSAs to major product brand commercials to movie trailers to documentaries. Reach out to him if you need a deep, commanding, voice of God sounding voice for your project, and God can't do it because he's got laryngitis again. He's got the whole world in his hands, so what else do you expect going around touching on everything like that? And so, without further ado, we bring you The Alamo by Cedric May. The wounded man raised his hand to point, and Sam watched as blood dribbled like raindrops from the end of his finger. Water, boy. Give me some of that water there. Sam turned to look at the bladder of water hanging from a spike on the wall, but shook his head. No, sir. You got a gut wound. Look here. Sam took one of the few clean rags that hadn't been soaked in blood from the side table and dipped it into a half-filled pail of well water at the foot of the bed. He dabbed the damp towel across the wounded man's lips, squeezing it a bit to let a few drops dribble into his mouth, but not enough to hurt him further. The man moaned as he lapped the meager drops of water from his pale, cracked lips. His arm fell limp over the edge of the thin straw mattress as he lapped the moisture in a delirious ecstasy. Sam almost felt pity for him, as he placed the blood-soaked hand back over the hole in his stomach where blood continued to flow like a piddling fountain. As the man lapped, the roar of a rifle shot rattled the room, causing Sam to jump and cover the man in the bed. The man continued licking at the wet rag as Sam shot a glance across the room at the other man standing in the doorway, reloading a Springfield musket. Shots were being fired all around the mission compound as the Mexican army advanced on the walls but Sam had managed to ignore the din as he nursed the colonel. But a musket blast from inside the room was deafening. God damn it, Joe. Why the hell are you shooting? Blasted Mexicans are coming over the walls, trying to keep them at bay, Joe said as he reloaded the rifle, shoving a ball and cartridge down the barrel with a ramrod. Sam dipped the rag into the bucket of water again and dabbed at the wounded man's forehead where a musket ground had grazed him. Every part of him that wasn't covered with blood was pale as winter. You a goddamn fool, Joe, Sam called over his shoulder, shooting at the folks coming to make you free. Another shot rattled the small room, causing Sam to duck and curse under his breath. Sam looked up to see tears flowing down Colonel Travis's bloody, soot-covered cheeks, carving semi-clean rolls down the pale flesh. His body heaved with each sob. It wasn't supposed to be like this. Travis wept as he lay helpless, bleeding. I suppose not, Master Travis, Sam said, dabbing at the bloody head wound with the cool cloth. Where's Bowie? Travis asked, turning to Sam. Well, sir? Sam hesitated, turning to stare out the window towards the barracks on the interior of the mission. He did. What? No. Yes, sir. He did now. He blew his own brains out with the 54 Harper's Ferry. Travis found the strength to grab Sam's forearm. Don't lie to me, boy, he said with wide eyes. Yes, sir, 
Masaboe shot himself, thinking the Mexicans had already breached the walls and were after him. It was just a fever though. He was lying there raving like mad, demanding his pistols. I gave them to him, and he just blew his brains all over the wall. Travis fell back on the mattress and wailed, holding the gushing wound in his gut. No, it wasn't supposed to be like this. No, sir. Never took Master Boy as a kind to take his own life. Been with him near 10 years now and seen him do a lot of crazy things, but... Sam winced as he relived the moment his master, James Bowie, commander of the Texan Volunteers, took the gun and put it in his mouth. He had been sick and feverish for days, suffering the worst of an affliction picked up after a night of raging drunkenness, after he thought he had won sole command of the mission from Travis. But when the regular army and cavalrymen complained about Bowie's drunkenness, how he ordered the release of all the prisoners from the San Antonio jails and harassed the local citizenry, another agreement was made for a shared command. Bowie was getting the volunteers and Travis command of the professional soldiers and cavalrymen. There was finally peace between the two men, but Bowie became so ill he was bedridden, forced to issue feverish orders from his sick room for the next month. The doctors couldn't make head nor tails of it, and his condition got worse over time. In the final 48 hours of madness, the raving got so bad, Sam was glad his master was too sick to stand. Being convinced Bowie would have done some unspeakable violence to himself or someone attending to him. In his madness, he saw Santa Ana spies and abolitionists all around, and everyone was a threat. At the very end, he claimed he saw demons. Once the Mexican siege hit its most desperate hour, once the artillery had weakened the walls and the soldiers began scaling them in numbers, Bowie ordered Sam to give him his pistols so he could defend himself. Delirious with fear from the death and destruction he was witnessing, Sam obeyed, but didn't expect his master to immediately put one of the flintlocks in his mouth and pull the trigger. Sam never liked his master. Bowie was a cruel, vicious man. Although shocked by the sudden death at his own hands, Sam was not sad to see him wide-eyed on his side, missing the whole back of his head. Another deafening blast caused Sam to jump as Joe continued his defense, shielding himself behind the thick door. They're breaching the walls faster now, he yelled over his shoulder. Coming over in twos and threes. He yanked another cartridge from the canvas ammunition pouch slung over his shoulder and reloaded. You don't understand, Sam, Travis said wide-eyed. Bowie can't be dead. I shouldn't be laid up here neither. Look. Travis opened the top of his shirt to reveal a small green figurine hanging around his neck by a braided leather strap. Sam gasped at the sight of the grotesque little bauble. Bowie wore one exactly like it, though Sam never seen the ugly little thing prior to his master's recent fits of madness. Looking close now, Sam couldn't figure out what the small carving was supposed to represent. But whatever it was, it didn't look natural. A large bulbous head sat directly atop the necklace shoulders of a corpulent body with bat wings erupting from between its shoulders. The thing's face vaguely resembled something from a distant memory, like one of the creatures Sam remembered slithering around the ocean waters near his village back home. The carving seemed roughly hewn from a jade stone that gave off a dim glow. This was supposed to protect me. Bowie too, supposed to bring us eternal life, bring us riches beyond our wildest imaginings. 
Travis gripped the old stone carving as he began coughing uncontrollably, each violent contraction causing blood to gush from his wound. Sam pressed the rag against his stomach, but the cotton material was soon saturated. Travis looked into Sam's eyes, ashen and spent. Why did you stop to help? He asked, his voice weak. Sam thought back to the moment he ran from Bowie's barracks so he could tell Travis of his master's demise, only to see the colonel stumbling across the open yard, both hands cradling his stomach. His head suddenly snapped backward and he collapsed not ten feet from his own barracks rooms. Joe had been giving his master covering fire from the doorway, but now he fired his rifle over the prone body, concentrating on the Republican soldiers coming through gaps in the upper walls. The cracking of rifle fire and thunder of cannons from all directions was disorienting, making Sam's vision blur and his head spin. He covered his ears to shut out some of the noise and regained his senses. He saw there was a panic on the catwalk all along the ramparts. Though the walls had not yet been breached by more than a handful of Mexican infantrymen in their blue and white uniforms. Sam turned back toward the barracks when he saw Colonel Travis's leg kicking in the dirt. He was still alive. Sam ran through the black smoke of gunfire and grabbed Travis under the arms, pulling him toward the room Joe was firing from. Why, Sam? Travis asked again, his voice fading further. Why'd you save me? I bought and sold so many of your kind during my adult life. Why didn't you just leave me out there? The barracoons, Sam said. Barracoons? Yes, sir. You mean in Africa? Sam nodded. Yes, sir. The barracoons. When the neighboring tribes invaded my village, they killed my father, separated me from the rest of my family. They put me in one of them barracoons where I was crammed in a cell, shoulder to shoulder with 20 strangers for 40 days. We fought over breadcrumbs and the water that dripped through a crack in the ceiling. I had no one to help me. I was alone. They're in the mission, Joe yelled from the door before firing off another round. Our boys are falling back to the barracks. They're forming a firing line. Travis stared at Sam for a moment before shooting a hateful glance at Joe's back. That stupid fucker over there he said as he rolled the amulet around in his fist. I bet he would have let me lay out there and die. He glanced back at Sam, put a hand on his shoulder. But you, Sam, he trailed off as he opened his hand to reveal the amulet. Travis stared for a moment. Holy, he said, gaping closer at the luminous jade stone. I wasn't listening to him straight. Maybe this thing will still give me what I want after all. Travis's eyes became wide as he considered the strange charm in his hand. Maybe that old seal was right. Maybe there's still life in the claim to be had. Sam saw a change come over Travis, a moment of manic energy that caused him to grip his shoulder and pull him close. Sam wasn't sure what he was talking about, but if it had anything to do with that nasty little totem, he didn't want any of it. Jesus! Joe yelled as he fired another booming shot through the door. They're pouring over the walls. Joe slammed the door shut and ducked into a crouching position right before a half dozen musket balls blew holes through the wood, showering everyone inside with splinters. Sam covered his head to protect himself. He could hear the muffled screams of dying men through the walls and knew it wouldn't be long before the Republican troops came bursting in to find him tending one of the rebel leaders. Joe cracked the door and fired off another round. Bring me those pistols, he yelled 
pointing at a pair of holstered muskets hanging from a peg next to the water bladder. Listen to me, Sam, Travis continued, ignoring the splinters and ruckus from outside. I can see now. As long as I wear this amulet, I can live on forever. But you've got to help me. Travis's energy was beginning to fade, and he lay back again, holding the weeping hole in his gut. You, you've got to help me just one more time, he said as his voice began to go quiet. Why should I do that now? Sam said as the sounds of gunfire and panic echoed outside the barracks. When freedom is about to come walking through that door. Riches, Sam, Travis hissed. There's riches in it for you. You just have to trust me. Come close. The guns! Hurry! Joe screamed over his shoulder as Lieutenant William B. Travis whispered secrets into Sam Ayodele's ear. Meanwhile, the Texan defense had collapsed and Santa Ana soldiers were bayoneting everyone who stood before them. Joe dropped two cartridges in his fumbling rush to reload his rifle before firing off one last round. He screamed for the pistols hanging on the wall behind him as he slammed the heavy door and ducked just as two Republican soldiers fired into the room. Two more holes erupted through the door, spraying splinters everywhere. When he opened his eyes, Joe was shocked to see that Sam was no longer in the room, and the peg that held the holstered pistols was empty. There was a chair under the sole window. Tattered curtains hung draped over the outside of the room now. Travis lay motionless in the bed, eyes wide open and lolled back in his head. He hugged the water bladder that once hung on the spike out of arm's reach. Joe cursed as the door flew open and several Mexican infantrymen barreled in to stab him repeatedly with their bayonets. Sam was several miles away before they started burning the bodies. He could have easily been among the cremated, but he had listened closely several days ago as Lieutenant James Bonham, who Colonel Travis had sent out to find reinforcements in Goliad, boasted to Bowie how he had snuck through Santa Ana's lines to rejoin his comrades after his failed operation. Sam didn't particularly like the boy, since he was always sucking up to Bowie, telling tall tales about his exploits. But Sam found his boasting instructive in this instance, and it helped him weave a path past the Mexican forces surrounding the mission. The sun was setting as he looked down on the burning, chaotic mess of what had once been a Catholic mission. He reached into his pocket and pulled out the necklace he'd taken from Travis after he drank the water that accelerated his death. He turned the amulet over in his hand, considering what the colonel had said to him about its supposed powers and the reward he would receive if he took the jewelry back to the Louisiana mystic who had given it to him. Sam slid the amulet back into his pocket and turned toward the south. He hadn't gone three steps before a voice stopped him cold in his tracks. Where you think you going, Sam? Sam turned slowly at the sound of the unfamiliar voice, raising his hands as he swiveled on his heels. He didn't recognize the youthful Mexican soldier standing 10 feet behind him, pointing a flintlock pistol at his chest. But he did recognize the way he talked. There was a familiar hard tone and rhythm to his speech that was far too worldly and cynical for this young man, a boy barely out of his teens. The accent was all wrong too, and there was no way Sam could think of that he could have known his name. Hello, Master Bowie, Sam said, eyeing the unfamiliar face in front of him. The young man holding a pistol raised an eyebrow. A disheveled lock of blonde hair fell across his eye. So you know who I am? Yes, sir. I knows the way you talk anywhere. The man laughed. What color are my eyes? 
Blusa. The laugh coming from the young man's body didn't match his youth any more than his voice. If I have to be a Mexican, at least I got a blue-eyed one, he said as he patted his pockets. I wonder if I got any papers telling me who I am. Probably come from a rich family, giving your youth and rank as a lieutenant, Sam said, nodding toward the uniform. You sporting a nice fancy sidearm too. Ain't no common infantryman. Lost your hat though, Master Boy. You got a sharp eye, Sam, as always, the young man said, taking a step closer. But don't go trying to butter me up. Don't forget, I know you, he said with a snarl. I guess Travis told you about the ambulance, huh? He did, sir. Leastways, what he thought he knew. Seems he didn't know the half of it when he bribed me with mine, huh? He said, fiddling with something beneath his uniform shirt. He wanted command of the Alamo so bad that he was willing to share his secret with me to get part of command. He was supposed to give mine to Steve Austin back in Louisiana last August, but they missed each other. Who knows what that Cajun witch had planned for them, but boy let out another long, almost manic laugh. Now look at me. This young fella must have been in charge of the detailed burning bodies. One minute I was in bed holding a pistol in my hand, Mexicans coming over the walls, and the next I'm standing in the middle of the plaza staring at a pile of burning bodies. I look down and see myself lying there, head half blown off, smoldering on a heap of burning corpses. He paused for a moment, eyes staring off in the distance before coming back to himself with a grin. You know, it's something else being in a young body again, he said, slapping his chest with a sharp whack. I was 40 years old and all stove up yesterday, and now I'm probably 18, maybe 19 years old, right? I feel like a fucking god in this young body. I wish I'd have known how good it felt to be young the first time around, he said with another mean laugh. Well, sir, in the end, Mr. Travis did figure out that the eternal life the Louisiana witch meant was... Well, Sam nodded toward Bowie and his new embodiment. That's right, Sam. The amulet holds souls in it until the next body puts it on. And then, blam! Bowie held his free hand up, arm extended into the air, fingers splayed. After a dramatic pause, he lowered his hand, holding it out to Sam. Now toss Travis over to me. Sam began lowering one hand when Bowie called out. And don't you think of reaching for that sidearm there? waving his own pistol at the hosted flintlock at Sam's side. Your black ass ain't never been any good at shooting anyways, so don't get any clever ideas. Sam eased his hand into his pocket and took out the amulet. It occurred to him all the bad Bowie might be able to do once he had it, all the lives he could live or take with two of these cursed little monsters. Toss it here now, he called a little louder, seeing Sam's hesitation. I promise no harm will come to you, but Sam knew better knew that this young boy was just as likely to shoot him right here out of pure meanness or sell him off once they got back to the U.S. Either option wasn't too appealing. Sam tossed the amulet over to his old master, who reached out to catch it as it fell slightly short. Taking advantage, Sam drew a pistol and raised it to fire, but the more experienced boy was far faster, especially in his youthful new body. He let the amulet arc to the ground as he refocused his sights and pulled the trigger aiming for Sam's face. There was an unexpected fizz as the hammer dropped and the powder in the pistol burned unevenly, causing a slight delay in the discharge, just long enough for Sam to duck to one knee before the end of young Bowie's barrel blossomed fire and sparks. It spit a lead round that whizzed harmlessly over Sam's head. Sam raised the pistol again, sure he had the drop on his old master, 
but the young man gritted his teeth and hurled the spent gun at Sam, who crossed his arms over his head as he ducked a hunk of hot gunmetal and brass. By the time he looked up, Bowie was on top of him, using his newfound speed and extensive experience as a brawler to grab Sam around the neck while reaching for the second pistol in his holster. But young James Bowie miscalculated his advantage. The old James Bowie had several inches of height and 30 pounds of brawn on Sam, who was shorter and slender of build. He came at Sam as if he were fighting with the same height and girth he'd always known himself to have. But this young James Bowie was slighter of build, and he never lifted much more than school books or a riding crop prior to his commission as a lieutenant in the Mexican Army, a position purchased by the former soul's parents. Sam had a grown man's muscles and was accustomed to heavy farm work. So as soon as he realized young Bowie was reaching for his second pistol, he shoved his free arm between the boy's legs and heaved him backwards over his shoulder. Bowie hit the ground flat on his back, gasping for air that was knocked clean out of his lungs. Sam backed away and pointed the pistol at the boy on the ground. That'll be enough, he started, but the young boy flipped over, gasping for air, and pulled a broad-bladed knife from his belt, one of his old master's famed Bowie knives. He looked up, teeth gritted, and charged. Sam pulled the trigger and sent a lead ball whistling through Bowie's throat, the round ricocheting off his spine and exiting at an angle through the side of his neck. Bowie, wearing a white infantry officer's uniform and looking like a skinny, blonde-headed Mexican youth, staggered backward, grabbing his throat. He tried to say something, but his mouth worked without any sound coming forth. He fell backward, wide-eyed, mouth still working. Sam watched as he lay there, blood bubbling from his mouth and a hole in his throat and Bowie laid there, wide-eyed, as if in surprised wonder. Sam watched his old master, looking like a pale youth, lie in the grass until he was certain the light had gone from his eyes. He knelt and took the broad-bladed knife from the boy's clenched fist and tucked it into his belt. He then unbuttoned the boy's shirt and took the amulet from around his neck. Standing, he searched the ground until he found the other jade amulet. He held them both up in the fading light of the setting sun by their braided leather cords and stared at their green glow. He slid both amulets back into his pocket and turned to the south. He knew he wasn't going back to Louisiana, like Travis had begged him, to return his amulet to the cage in which he expected to revive him. No, Sam knew the riches Travis promised were, as always, a fantasy of his heart's obsession. The same lie he told to all the settlers who came to Mexican Texas to garner the riches of the land off the backs of slaves. No. Sam knew better than to trust such promises. The one good thing that Master Bowie had given him was all the practice speaking Spanish. Bowie was fluent, and he assisted his body servant, among other things, be fluent as well. Sam wouldn't be going to Louisiana or anywhere else in the U.S. for the time being. No, he decided he was going to remain a free man down in Mexico City, where he'd figure out what to do with the pair of pistols, Bowie knife, and the two lost souls he carried in his front pocket. our story. Hope you enjoyed. Special thanks to our episode artist this week, Tristan Tolhurst. Tristan's a talented illustrator, comic artist, and painter, and his art for the Weird West Tentaculum issue, including this episode's cover art, by the way, was awesome. Thanks, buddy. Find him at Tristan Draws Monsters on Instagram. Our program is brought to you by Nicole Neely, 
Bo Kyer, Audrey Kay, Jossie Gerwig, Sean Gentry, Melissa Knight, Wyatt Scott, A Thing with Laryngitis on It, Joe Beatrice, Oren Pratt, Bart Epstein, Anna Rose, Mario Lovett, and yours truly, Norm Sherman. Reminding you, that horse of yours don't look rad. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.